everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to our first Are You Kidding Me? episode of 2022. I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi. And this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by Ryan Hanlon. Um, He is the acting CEO and president of the National Council for Adoption. And so we have a lot of things we want to talk to him about. Adoption has been much in the news lately. We want to get into some research, a little bit of politics, a little bit of kind of the whole issue. So, you know, Ryan, I, I wanted to talk to you. There were there were a few articles in particular that came out last year. Some of them had to do with uh, Texas legislation um, that was going to put more restrictions on abortion. And you had a situation where people started talking about, well, you know, if uh, if women choose to um, uh, have their children be adopted, you know, are there really resources out there for this? Um, Are there families that really want to adopt children? And what is the effect of adoption on children? And so these are all very big questions, but I know uh, you will bring a lot of expertise to this subject. So can you kind of give us like a sort of the broad landscape of what adoption looks like in the United States and um, and really like let's zero in on kind of what are the effects on children. Yeah, and, and, and also just contrast that with what was adoption looked like 30, 40 years ago versus today. Yeah, great, great questions. Um, so Naomi, Ian, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to uh, be part of this. There's a lot to respond to there. So let me try and break it up. But I'll, I'll start with uh, Naomi's question about what adoption looks like Broadly, in the United States, there are hundreds of thousands of adoptees in the U.S. Every year, there's over um, 60, over 70,000 adoptions of children in the United States. The majority of those are adoptions from foster care. But there's also inter-country adoptions, adoptions from other nations to the U.S., and uh, private domestic adoptions, um, what uh, many of us think of as like an infant adoption. Um, And that's generally handled by an adoption agency or an attorney to the um, adoptive parents. And it's not, um, it doesn't involve a state or federal government. That's what adoption might look like uh, generally. Um, As I said, the the vast majority are adoptions from foster care. So um, there's last year, there were over 57,000 adoptions from foster care. And um, and, um, that was actually a decrease. COVID impacted all types of adoption. Um, That was a decrease from the year before um, where there were well over 60,000 adoptions. So adoption is is something that's been um, part of the American culture for many years. And um, to to Ian's question, what has this looked like previously? Well, adoptions are are now becoming um, much more diverse in terms of who's adopting and who's being adopted. What we used to do 100 years ago is we used to try and match a child that looked like their parents, and um, and we would do so. It was it was almost only um, infant adoption, and we would we would um, look to uh, a, a newborn or a very young child, and we would look to match that child that we thought looked like the parents. So we don't we don't take that approach anymore. Um, With so, the idea that so so no one would know the child was adopted. That that was a big part of it. Yeah, it was it was also there was a lot more secrecy involved in adoption. And the birth parents weren't having an ongoing relationship with the um, adoptive family or and the, their you know shared child, and so um, you know one of Ian's questions: Well, how has this changed over time? Well, we recently did a study 
of adoptive parents. And we looked at cohorts. So we looked at, say, the last 10 years of families who did a private domestic adoption. 75% of those families have a relationship with the birth family. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the 10 years prior to that, only you know 57% do. And 10 years prior to that, it's even lower. So as a field, we're doing more to encourage this. And we're training adoptive parents and talking to the expectant parents who are making placement decisions about what options they have. And, and that one of those options is to maintain an yeah. ongoing relationship with the child. Can you just describe that generally? What, what is typically considered an open adoption? Like what that actually means? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and there's a very wide range. So sometimes what that looks like is that um, there are many meetings every year that um, between the you know birth parents, it's often the, the birth mother um, with the adoptive family, and they're exchanging information, emails, social media, text messaging, um, and, and they have a, a, a very close and ongoing relationship. Other times, um, it might be less frequent. It might be, say, they meet once a year or they um, exchange information, you know, through an intermediary like the adoption agency. But more and more, it's looking like these open, ongoing relationships that aren't mediated by another party. They're directly, you know, from the adoptive parents and the birth parents. And then as the child gets older, the child's making more decisions, you know, about that level of contact and what what you know, these children are looking for in terms of contact. So, so what is, um, just to, to get back to this question about what we know about the effects of adoption on children. Um, uh, there was a lot of, as I said, discussion, um, kind of last fall about kind of the trauma of adoption. A number of people, you know, wrote op-eds in the New York times and other places, um, you know, saying that it was this, um, you know, very difficult thing and that their life was never the same. Um, and that, uh, you know, that they really did that, that, that adoption, Adoption was a, a traumatic event for them, um, and that they questioned whether we should really be doing adoptions. Um, and so, I was wondering, you know, whether you, you've done some research on this, or what um, what you think is the effect, and maybe kind of contrasting the more open approach that we have now with the approach that we used to have. Yeah, another great question, um, and, and not just my organization, but but many other social scientists have done research studies looking at this. And what's important here is is who we're comparing these children or these you know uh, adults to. So if we compare uh, a, a non-adopted person to an adopted person, that's really you know um, a different comparison than say if we compare somebody who was placed for adoption from foster care to someone who was never placed for adoption or was institutionalized or or something else. Um, Because oftentimes that question presumes that adoption itself is the traumatic event, as opposed to um, what we see, which is that um, many of these children experience neglect or abuse prior to the adoption, and the adoption is actually itself an intervention. So um, to break this down, you know, more specifically um, in that that research I mentioned that that we did of adoptive parents ended up being the largest study of adoptive parents that's ever been conducted. Over 4,000 parents represented over 6,000 children. We looked at one of the, the things we looked at is what needs their children have after adoption. So are they getting speech therapy? Are they getting occupational therapy? Were they diagnosed with a learning disorder or sensory processing disorder? And they were, um, it was different by the type of adoption. It was actually significantly different 
by what type of adoption it was, um, but it, it was actually one of the more surprising findings in my mind was that these needs are actually pretty high. And so I think you can look at that two different ways. You can say, well, this is obviously a negative description of adoptees, or you can say this is a really positive description that adoptive families are meeting needs that are going to be present for children anyway. The presumption that I would look at in this data is not that these children wouldn't have a need for occupational therapy or speech therapy, you know, if they hadn't been adopted, but rather that they're getting it. Yeah, they're, they're actually receiving services now. Um, and the same thing is true when we looked at educational data. There's a large percentage of children who are getting an educational accommodation and uh, much larger than the the. Um, the typical student adoptees are getting educational accommodations. So we can look at that and say this is bad, or we can look at that and say these are parents who are advocating for their child to get the accommodations that they need. Mm-hmm. But doesn't isn't a lot of the impact, um, just as you say, adoption unto itself isn't necessarily the traumatic event. In some ways, it's, it's the saving um, event. But isn't the key the age at which a child is adopted? Like you just mentioned that Years ago, the normed um, type of adoption was an infant adoption. Now, it sounds like the vast majority are much older children. So first of all, what do you think explains that? Because I can't imagine, I mean, I would imagine most people that are interested in adoption are still very interested in young infants, right? So that hasn't changed. Yeah, no, you're right. And so that, that um, I, can, I can say a couple of things in response to that. Um, when we look at the type of adoption, private domestic adoption, which is primarily gonna be infants, are gonna be receiving fewer of those services. Those children have fewer needs than the other types of adoption. Um, but that also might be because of the reasons these children are you know, being placed for adoption, aren't necessarily having anything to do with abuse or neglect. And so, um, you know, but but we can also look at other measures like um, attachment, and there are, are factors that impact whether or not children are going to have strong attachment later. And age is a very significant factor there. So, so would be the the child's special needs status. So, when we are, are looking at that, and we say, well, gosh, now seventy percent or more of the children being placed for international adoption have a special need. That's important to look at because it's the special need that might be an indication of those medical services that are needed later or the supportive services that are needed later, as opposed to just the status of being an adoptee. So what let's um, when we when we think about this, I mean, there's been a lot of, like I said, conversation about um, uh, from 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 people who are adoptees talking about how they're not happy with their experience in various ways. Um, this is kind of there's been this focus on what's called lived experience um, uh, as an important voice to listen to in this conversation. Um, what what do you make of this? I mean, do you I mean. One possibility, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll sort of offer a brief digression, maybe try to, to offer my own answer to this question and sort of ask your opinion. Um, I, I gave a talk uh, recently at a university in Florida, and after the talk, um, three uh, African-American students came up to me, and one of them had been adopted. And she was she was quite upset because um, I had kind of tried to uh, explain what I thought were the fairly minimal effects of transracial adoption as opposed to just adoption generally. 
And she described how difficult it was for her when she was a young adult in high school and then in college, kind of adjusting, finding her place in the world um, and, you know, finding her identity, finding the group of people that she wanted to hang around with. Um, And then the other two uh, people who had come up to me who were not adopted sort of chimed in and talked about how difficult it was for them, too. And I kind of stopped the conversation. I said, we're talking about adoption here. (laughs) And, And they all kind of stopped for a minute. I said, you know, one possibility here is that young adults just have difficulty sometimes finding themselves and discovering their identity and fitting in. And maybe it's a problem that we all have and that it doesn't have necessarily anything to do with adoption, or maybe it has something to do with adoption, but we all have, you know, kind of our own difficulties finding our way in the world. And I'm not sure whether what I was saying kind of got through to them, but um, but I do wonder whether sometimes with young people, when we we just give them a, you know, they, we just give them a hammer, everything they see is a nail. And so if we tell them that this is obviously going to be the source of any difficulty and trauma you have in your life, they're always going to blame that thing. One of the responses I would, I would have to that is similar to what I said earlier, who are we comparing these children to? And are we asking non-adopted individuals about their experience with identity formation during their adolescent years, because that's not an uncommon thing. That That is a developmental stage is that we are changing developmentally. And um, for many adolescents, there is a lot of angst to that, which isn't to say that adoption isn't a factor or an, an impact. So I know um, what you're talking about, Naomi. I've heard many of those voices. And I, I think um, it behooves us to, to listen to them and, and, and hear what they have to say, um, and also to look at empirical evidence. And the empirical evidence, the social science, does not tell us that when uh, parents of one race adopt a child of a different race, that that isn't going to lead towards negative outcomes. There's just not empirical evidence for that. In fact, there's not just been studies, but meta-analyses of this and, and that is, is simply not a factor that, that ends up being true for them. Um, I, I was reading a study uh, recently um, where the meta-analysis looked at, it represented over 33,000 cases and children who were placed for adoption had the exact same self-esteem, whether or not you know, race was a factor for them, whether or not it was a domestic adoption, whether or not it was an international adoption. Those just those weren't panning out as... Um, factors that that were important. There are factors that are, and as Ian said, age is going to be one of them. Um, and um, special needs status, you know, medical or, you know, cognitive special needs, those are going to be factors that um, will have indications for longer term outcomes. And, and they're important. That doesn't mean um, older adoptions are bad. I, I would say the opposite. They're, they're very important. Um, but um, And the same thing with special needs. It doesn't mean we don't adopt children with special needs. It, it means these children need you know, more attention and care, and it requires adoptive parents and the community around them to be even more supportive and educated so they're equipped to meet those challenges that might come. Yeah. So I, you know, so I, I, I run schools, uh, charter schools, and there's a whole new category of research coming. I think it's called race matching. And basically the, the ideology is that, you know, you need black kids to be taught by black teachers and, you know, and, and, you know, even though the evidence suggests that there are a lot of factors beyond race that determine whether or not the academic relationship between a, a teacher and student is a productive one. Uh, and in adoption, you know, the National Association of Black Social Workers still 
has their directive is that they don't support uh, interracial adoption, even despite the data that you just said. So how do we how do we break this kind of stranglehold, at least that some perceive that the race of the child and the race of an adoptive parent is paramount, regardless, even if that means the kid has to linger in foster care or some other um, situation that they're not getting the support they need, if there's someone who's not their race that would be willing to adopt them? You know, I, I think what we do is we look at the empirical evidence that exists, and there's now a lot. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, did a study um, that they put the findings out um, last year um, where they looked at um, issues pertaining to race, and, and they were evaluating MEPA, which is the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, and it was amended with a, a law called IEPA. And um, so they looked at those results, and they saw racial disparities, but they saw that there are far fewer racial disparities now than there used to be. So this is an area that's improving over time, and it's improving, uh, I think, in large part because of better child welfare laws than we used to have. We but even if there are racial disparities, you know, let, let's say there are racial disparities, is that evidence that whatever the cause of those disparities is the race of the adoptive parent? No, Not but at there all. are racial disparities in terms of who's getting adopted. So just trying to figure out, making sure that Black children who are in the system have the same opportunities to be adopted um, is, one, is, is one sign that the, you, you'll see the racial disparities start to shrink if we ensure that laws that were restricting Black kids from being adopted um, are, are no longer in effect. Yeah, so I'm looking more just at the adoption data than the child welfare data overall. And, and that's exactly right. So we're now seeing that um, children who are Black or, or other races have a better opportunity to be placed for adoption than they used to. Why? Because we're not just allowing them to languish in the system. A different law, ASFA, the Adoption and Safe Families Act, did uh, a lot of work to reduce the timeframes that children were in care um, in just, you know, many, many years in foster care without a path towards permanency. And unfortunately, in, in recent years, we've done a lot to take away um, some of the teeth that that law had. So the, the um, requirements in that law aren't being implemented at a state level and, and um, by judges who have uh, the authority to make these decisions. Can we talk for a minute about um, kind of who are the adoptive families out there? Um, like I said, one of the questions here is, you know, if if more women decided that they wanted to have their children be adopted, are there adoptive families out there? And, you know, are there enough families out there to meet the needs of the kids in foster care? And how do how do we measure kind of interest in adoption and willingness to adopt? I'm, I'm kind of curious about the research on that. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, um, and it's probably better to, to break it up. So um, the question, are there families out there? There are um, far more families that are hoping to adopt a private infant adoption than there are parents who are placing children for adoption every year. So, um, and, and there's no, um, there's no really good data on this. I can't tell you if it's 10 to one or, you know, 15 to one, I can tell you it's substantially more. So if we tripled or quadrupled the number of private domestic adoptions next year with our magic wand, uh, we still um, wouldn't run out of 
adoptive parents. And when we survey um, the American public generally, um, the um, findings are that, that even more parents would be open to adoption, but they're concerned about the cost of adoption, and they're concerned that um, they, they don't they don't see a role for themselves adopting um, privately uh, an infant if there's already a long wait. And so um, that, that's maybe a long way to say there are um, you know if if more women chose to make adoptive placements. Um, there's certainly on the you know um, adoptive parent side. There's many many waiting adoptive parents. Um, the the other question you asked, I think, um, is uh, about just generally who these adoptive parents are. Um, one of the things that that might be important to point out is that with private domestic adoption, the expectant parents get to choose who the adoptive parents are. So they're not being forced into a placement. They actually get to make a choice that they're comfortable with. And that if they want to place with, if they do want a race match, they can do that. If they want to place with a same-sex couple, they can do that. If they want to place with a married couple or a single individual or a family that has children or a family that doesn't have children, they get to make those decisions. And um, the, the role for adoption professionals would be to you know, counsel and equip and empower those expectant parents to make the decision that they think is right for, you know, themselves and for their child. And so um, that, that would be the, the first response I would give um, is that we, we want to be encouraging these um, expectant parents to be the ones who are making that decision. And, and, um, and with private domestic adoption, they very much are. With adoptions from foster care, the majority already have a relationship with this child. They're either the foster parent or a relative or both. And so that does, that's going to describe the vast majority of adoptions from foster care. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Why? Because these children have an existing relationship. The adoption might happen, but they've already been in this home for the last year or two. And there's less of a transition. There's less difficulty there. And, you know, they don't have to start in a new school and meet somebody brand new. They're, they're waking up in the same bed the next day, but they have the, um, with the adoption being finalized, they have a level of permanency and security that wasn't there before. Yeah. And, and with so many, with such higher numbers of kids going into foster care, how can, how do you think we can have adoption? be more uh, culturally accepted as a norm, particularly by young women who find themselves with an unwanted pregnancy or an unintended pregnancy, because it doesn't seem that creating an adoption plan is even on the table or it's a known option. And yet years later, there could have been warning signs when those kids uh, end up in foster care. You know, I think we can do a better job of providing accurate information about what adoption is. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about adoption. And so I think as a, you know, as an adoption professional and, and the, the larger community can do more to educate, um, it's primarily women, but educate these um, expected parents on what their options are in terms of adoption and what adoption looks like. I, I mentioned earlier that um, the vast majority of private domestic adoptions have an ongoing relationship with the the birth parents, and um, but it's not clear to me that birth you know these expectant parents 
know that. Know that, and that they understand what their options are. And so, um, you know, they're often when when they are asked questions about adoption, their response is, "Well, I don't want to. I don't want my kid to be in the foster care system, or you know, I don't want you know." And 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 that's not a reality. They have options that don't in any way involve the child welfare system, and where they have this this ongoing and very positive relationship you know, um, in the future. And so I think that's an, that would be an important response. Um, I think it's a different question when we're talking about the children who are in foster care and are waiting on adoption. And I think what that looks like is doing a better job of educating the public on, you know, what does it look like to be adopting from foster care? You know, who are the children that are available and what resources should we be providing to support these families that that are choosing adoption. There's over 117,000 kids currently in our child welfare system that are waiting on an adoptive home. What can we be doing to um, give potential or prospective adoptive parents, you know, more information and training to prepare them for that? And then what can we be doing legislatively at, at the state level or the federal level to be supporting and promoting adoption? And, um, you know, I would say that, that there are, you know, solutions. They're not going to solve all our problems, but that we could be doing a lot more to yeah. support adoption, you know, if we as a nation chose to do that. Well, it seems like, I mean, as you say, you know, the, for private infant um, domestic adoption, um, we have met a, a very large supply of potential families um, relative to the um, number of babies who are available for adoption. But when it comes to foster care, it's a slightly different story, statistically speaking. Um, you know, that we have a lot of kids in foster care who are not finding adoptive homes. And obviously one of those reasons is age. And one of those reasons, um, uh, you know, are special needs, mental behavioral health issues. Um, but I wonder also about kind of, um, there, there are a lot of complaints out there from, from advocates who are, who want to, um, prevent kids from going into foster care in the first place and who, you know, think, foster care, frankly, should be abolished. Um, the complaint is that, you know, the, there are very few families available to take these kids in, and those who are, are not necessarily the families you would want to be raising these kids, some of them. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of think about for a minute, you know, who who are the adoptive families willing to adopt out of foster care and what we can do to kind of broaden that pool to kind of make foster care something that is more um, normal among, uh, you know, ordinary middle class Americans, um, as opposed to just something that, you know, some people might do for payment or just some people might do uh, for, for other reasons. Yeah, um, great question. So in response to those children that are waiting um, for adoption from foster care. The first thing I would say is, you know, we did 57,000 adoptions last year from foster care. And, you know, the year before that, we did over 60,000. So um, I don't think it's an accurate thing to say that these children aren't being, you know, being placed. So for someone who's criticizing saying there aren't families out there, I, I would say, well, obviously there are families out there. And the majority of children who aren't reunified are being placed for adoption. That's um, that's not something that is is really up for debate if we you know look at the empirical evidence um, that exists. Um, but what could we be doing to shorten the amount of time that they're waiting? Right now, it, it still could take a year or more after they've had their parental rights terminated 
until they go to um, to until they have their adoption finalized. And as we said, we've already said, they have an existing relationship. This is either a relative or their foster parent or both. What, what, why are we making this take, you know, two years or three years when it should be taking two months or three months? So we could shorten the amount of time these children are in foster care, save states and the federal government a lot of money. And um, then the, the criticism that there are too many children um, would be reduced. The other thing we can do, Naomi, um, is exactly what um, you're suggesting, which is broaden the pool and the number of families who are who are able to uh, adopt. Um, you're right, if we were to compare adoptive parents who adopt from foster care to other types of adoption, they are lower income, you know, by comparison. Um, it doesn't mean that they're, they're low income, you know, compared to the rest of the United States, but compared to other types of adoption, they are a lower income and they have a lower educational level. And so, the more that we can be doing working with um, diverse communities, faith-based communities to um, be promoting adoption within you know, our networks and, and the, the families that we know that would be open to this, I think the better. Um, and, and we can be destigmatizing adoption. There's still a lot of misconceptions about what adoption looks like, who um, children in the foster care system are and, um, and be responsive to that. And finally, I'd say, we can do more at the state level and the federal level to support adoptive families. There are often a lot of needs, and I mentioned this earlier, for families post-adoption. What are we doing to ensure that they are having those needs met? Are we offering them appropriate support so that if there are challenges, they're able to, um, to you know, respond? And um, when there are barriers within the process itself, are we um, stopping who would have been great parents um, to begin with? And um, I think if we can be responding at those different levels, we'll see that the, the length of time that children are in care is going to be reduced. And the, um, that would mean that there's, you know, every year, if we, if we did 60,000 adoptions every year, but there were only 60,000 kids waiting every year, you know, then there would be less of a criticism there. Yeah. yeah. Last question, because I just I just want to note that there is a campaign now that's very focused on adopting teenagers. It's all about just adopting older kids. I'm wondering what you think if there was a campaign to your point earlier that showed adoptive parents who were interacting with their birth parent because they had had an infant adoption and an open adoption and a plan for staying in touch, because it seems like that you hit the nail on the head when you say when a lot of young women think about this, it's not even on the radar. And yet we have very little messaging about that kind of adoption. You know, and I think you're right. I think that would help us to, you know, break the myth that birth parents aren't staying involved in these adoptions. And it would serve as an educational point um, for the, the reality, which is, you know, when women do choose to make an adoptive placement, they have options to maintain an ongoing relationship. And I think that can be true when we're, we're talking about um, children in foster care as well. I think there's more work we can do to 
um, promote and, and maintain ongoing relationships with birth family you know, for foster care and um, for, for foster youth. They're going to an adoptive home. Um, that adoptive home can maintain relationships with the birth family, and, and often they do. Um, if we changed our policy to promote that better, I think we would have even better results. All right. Okay. Well, those are all of our questions. I want to thank Ryan Hanlon again from the National Council for Adoption for joining us today. You can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks very much. I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.